This text we're looking at this morning, it's one of the most famous and well-known texts in all of scriptures. We've, every one of us in this room, whether you're a Christian or you're not, you were raised in the church or you weren't, you've seen or heard these phrases like salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill. And the challenge we have when we come to passages like this is we're familiar enough that we think we know everything that's being said. And we have these kind of preloaded assumptions that we bring to the text. Maybe we heard this taught on a long time ago. And we kind of come in and we already think we know everything that the, that the passage says to us and everything that it has to say for us. And the danger is that we might miss what God is trying to say to us. Maybe it's something new. Maybe it's something old that he's trying to say in a new way. And so before we jump in to the text, I would love to pray and ask God to open our eyes and our hearts to the truths that he has for us, that we might see these words with new eyes and new hearts. So join me, will you? Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are a God who likes to bless. You want you want us as your people to grow in love for you, obedience to you. You want us to be a people who embrace the calling you've put on our life to go be salt and light. And so I pray this morning that not through the eloquence of my words, but through the power of your spirit as we come to your word, that you would stir some things in us that you would awaken some truths within us and some realities, that you would give us eyes to see who you've called us to be and what that might look like in our time and in our place. And so, Lord, we ask that knowing that you are eager and faithful to answer prayers like that, and we trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think one of the ways that... uh, One of the ways that we can keep this text strange, we can get over the familiarity, is we can actually look at it in the context that it was given. A lot of times, this is one of those passages that it's so memorable, it's really kind of easy just to scoop it out of the Bible and throw it on a coffee mug or a plaque to hang in your bathroom. And we lose sight of the fact that this is just one small part of a bigger sermon that Jesus has given. And that this is connected to what's come before it and what's come after it. And so if we're really going to understand what this passage meant and what Jesus' heart was in, in teaching this, we got to go back to chapter 4. we got to get a running start so that we can actually hit this thing in stride. Because in Matthew 4, Matthew tells us about Jesus beginning his public ministry. And Matthew tells us that Jesus, what he did is he traveled around the countryside of Galilee, and he preached the same sermon over and over and over again. And the sermon was not Repent of your sins and trust in me that I'm going to die for you so that you can go to heaven when you die. The sermon that Jesus preached was repent, stop what you're doing, because the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's here. It's at hand. Now, the challenge for us is the kingdom language and metaphor, it just doesn't land with us. We don't know a whole lot about kings and queens, except for maybe in fairy tales. Maybe we look at uh, monarchies as a whole through kind of a negative lens. The only royalty we really know of is the Queen of England 
And she might be great, but no one really knows exactly what she does, and she doesn't really have any real authority. And so we hear Jesus saying in the kingdom, and it just sounds strange, but it wouldn't have sounded strange in that day. And so in an effort to try to translate it to our day, and it's an imperfect translation, but it might help stir your imagination for the message Jesus is communicating. Think of presidency. Think of a president, you know, who doesn't have term limits. That the next president we elect, they're the one we're going to have forever. Some of you guys are shivering thinking about that. Well, the primary season's upon us. Anyone excited for the presidential primary season? Anyone fired up for it? Primary season's always interesting. Right now there are 20 candidates. Almost all of them are Democrats, but there's a couple of Republicans that want to challenge President Trump. And in primary season, that's when people always have the most ambitious plans and the ideals. Primary season is for dreamers. That's when you create your website and... Every candidate, what they do in primary season is they lay out their dream for the world. If I had all of the power, here's what I would do. And a lot of times, the things they're advocating for are amazing. They're great. I'll solve the health care problem. I'll solve the immigration problem. Uh, I will solve unemployment. I will solve climate change. Who wouldn't want that? You know, you, you look at it and you say, that's, that's great. It's their dream, their ambitions. For the world. They're saying, if my administration comes into power, this is what we're going to achieve. Well, when Jesus declared that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of heaven, that's Jesus' dream for the world. That's his desire for the world. And his desire for the world might include a lot of those things, but it's so much bigger. It's to heal the world of the brokenness that's been in it since the fall. To heal broken bodies, broken relationships between God and people and between, within people. To bring everything and make everything new. He said, that's what I've come to do. I've not come to rescue you and take you out of earth to heaven so you can avoid hell. Jesus says, I've actually come to get the hell out of earth and make it new. Which, that's a pretty big claim. Now, going back to that analogy of the, the presidential primary candidates, imagine that one of the uh, presidential hopefuls, they lay out all their policies, and then they start traveling. You know, they're on, on the campaign trail, and they roll into Des Moines, Iowa, and they, they give this amazing talk about unemployment and about economic flourishing, and they finish the talk, and then that day, unemployment solved in Des Moines. Next day, they get on a plane. They end up in Denver. They give a talk about solving the health care problems. They say, you know what? The best way to solve the health care problems is just get rid of all health problems. Give it, and people look at them, and they think that's kind of strange. But then by the time they leave Denver, all the hospitals are empty because everyone's healthy and healed. Then they go to San Francisco, I'm going to solve climate change. Before they even finish the talk, temperatures start lowering or rising, whichever they're supposed to do for a healthy climate. Like this is before they're even elected or recognized. What would happen? What would happen? People would go kind of crazy about it, wouldn't they? People would start 
packing a suitcase and saying, we got to get to Des Moines because I heard this is going down. We got to get to Denver. I heard this is going down. People would recognize and flock to the person and say, can I be a part of your campaign? Well, that's exactly what happened in Matthew 4. Jesus says the kingdom of healing is here. People are like, really? And then Matthew tells us, what did Jesus do after that? He healed everyone, not some of the people. Everywhere he went, he healed everyone of every affliction. He cast out demons. He gave sight to the blind. And so he got this following, these people who said, we want to follow you. They, they wanted to be his disciples. You could call them his campaign workers. And so then you get to the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is he is laying out what life in his administration is going to look like. What life in his kingdom is going to look like. So the Beatitudes, they're almost like core values. The core values of his campaign and his administration. And then the passage we're looking at now with that background, this is the mission statement for his campaign and his administration, the vision statement for his people. So I want to look at this under three headings. And it's a simple outline. It's right from the text. Number one, this text tells us about Jesus' vision of the church. When Jesus thinks about the church, what he's thinking of. Two, it gives us some warnings to the church. Jesus gives some warnings. And then three, Jesus gives a great promise for the church. But starting first with the vision. Jesus' vision for the church is really simple. He looks at his disciples, at all the people who've gathered around, and he says, you, and the you there is plural, and so since we're in Kentucky, we'll just translate that to y'all. He looks at the crowds, and he says, y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. And this had to be so strange because his disciples were such a ragtag crew of people. And Jesus gets up and he says, you are the salt of the earth. And you guys, you are the light of the world. Now we hear that and we don't know if salt of the earth is a compliment or insult. If someone says that you are salty in our day, I think that's an insult. I don't know exactly what it means, but I don't think any of us take it as a compliment. Furthermore, salt to us, it's something very, very ordinary, uh, you know, very, very cheap. Uh, it doesn't cost much. You can buy pounds of it for a few bucks unless you're buying the pink Himalayan version of it, which I'll let you in on a secret. It's still just salt, and it still tastes the same. It's all sodium chloride. And so in our day, that's kind of how we think of salt. But you have to understand in that day, Jesus' day, salt was a very valuable commodity. It was, in many ways, it was like oil. There were cities and even civilizations that were built around having access to salt. Uh, it often served as currency, and our word salary actually is derived from the Latin word for salt. That's why we use the phrase, so-and-so is not worth their salt. That salt was extremely valuable, and what made it so value valuable is like oil, there were many different uses for it. And so in that day, they didn't have refrigeration, and so salt was used as a preservative. If you slaughtered your cow and you have all of this meat, you're not going to eat it all in one sitting. How are you going to keep the meat from going bad? You're going to salt it. Another use of salt in that day, just like in our day, is it was a seasoning. 
that salt makes pretty much everything better when you put it on food. Almost everything. You can have an amazing steak. Sorry for two references to steak. It's my favorite food. But you can have an amazing steak. And if you don't have any salt on it, it's not going to be nearly as good. So salt, there's something about it that draws flavor out in a way that nothing else does. It's utterly unique in that way. It's different than pepper. Salt preserves its seasons, and also salt was used in that day as an antiseptic to heal, to clean out infections. And it would sting when they would do it. That's why you get the phrase salt in a wound, but it would heal. And so these are three, there's actually probably 10 or 15 more uses that were used in Jesus' day. These are three of the primary ones, and there's been a lot of ink spilled by a lot of people smarter than me arguing about which one of these Jesus really meant when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Are we the preservative? Are we the seasoning? Are we the people who come and heal? Is it A, B, or C? And of course the answer is D. It's all of the above. It's elements of every single one. I do think that Jesus, he calls us, and where we are present as his disciples, we curb decay. When things are breaking down and we show up, they should stop breaking down. When relationships are falling apart, we should step in and hold them together. I also think that Christians, we bring seasoning to this world, and it's not like, oh, we're going to spice up life, you know? We're not cayenne pepper. Like, we're not, we're not making everything really exciting. I think salt of the earth means the earth, God created, it was good. Sin has brought corruption and decay. But I think we actually, we bring out some of the goodness of the earth and of creation and even of the inherent goodness that we have as people created in the image of God, that we can reflect his glory in ways like that. And then lastly, the church is obviously called to be a place of healing. The mission of Jesus was to heal. His kingdom was a kingdom of healing. And so when Jesus says, he looks at his church, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out and actually engage with the world, and I want you to do good in it. That would be my summary. Go do good. Go get involved. The same goes for light. You know, we take light for granted, but in that day there was no electrical grid, and so candles were expensive to have light and utter darkness was a real relief. Why? Well, because light shows the way. Light alleviates anxiety, and it shows the way. And in saying, you are the light of the world, Jesus is saying, you are my people, and you are going to show the way to me, and you are going to show the world how they were created to live, how they can be restored to God, <laughs> how they can be redeemed. I mentioned... Who's Jesus saying this to? I mean, this is a big calling. And some of you, you're like, I like Christianity, or I like, I want to go to heaven when I die. I don't necessarily know about all this salt and light stuff. Well, Jesus is saying to all of his disciples, all of his campaign workers, everyone who's joined him on the trail, he's saying, listen, it's not just what I'm going to do, it's what you're going to do. You are salt, and you are light. And none of these people, they weren't NHS scholars. None of them went to Ivy League colleges. They didn't have connections to power or money or prestige. Who were the people in the crowd? 
that Jesus is saying this to? A bunch of people who were sick and disabled two weeks before, who didn't have jobs. Or if they did have jobs, they were blue-collar jobs with (laughs) no social standing. And what's so fascinating is Jesus looks at this ragtag crew. I mean, some of them are hillbillies, they're hicks, they live in the sticks. None of them are living in Rome. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They've got accents that people mocked. And Jesus looks at them, and it's so fascinating. He doesn't say, you need to go be salt. You should go and be light. He actually makes a declaration, you are salt. You are light. There's no command there. There's just an observation. You are salt. You are light. By virtue of simply following me, sitting under my teaching, and then living in the world, you're going to influence the world for good. Has anyone here seen any of the documentaries about the fire festival? Or anyone know what I'm talking about? I knew it was a gamble, but we'll go with it. Uh, so the fire festival, it was kind of, it was billed as being the next Woodstock, but in the Bahamas with all of the coolest people in the world, and it cost an awful lot of money. You can watch a number of documentaries about it. It cost thousands and thousands of dollars to get a ticket, and the whole thing ended up being a sham, and it fell apart. It's a great picture of kind of our world. It makes all these great promises has great advertising, and then totally fails to actually fulfill on those promises. That's a little deeper than I wanted to go with that, but that's the the thing. What stuck out to me, though, because there are people who are famous, and I have no idea why why they're famous, and my wife says, because they're influential. I'm like, why are they influential? Because they're famous, and the circular reasoning of it doesn't make sense to me, and I didn't quite understand how significant this was until I watched that documentary. And they said in that documentary that Kendall Jenner, who is one of these famous influential people that I don't know why they're famous or influential, but they approached her and they paid her $250,000 to make one Instagram post for this conference, this festival, this 250 grand. Why? Because they know she's got influence. And what's so awesome is how different the kingdom of God is. He's like, you have influence, but I'm not calling Kendall Jenner. I'm calling all of the nobodies. And I'm calling you just to go out and to engage. And you're going to wield influence by just showing up. That's the vision. The church should make the world better because they stay close to Jesus and they embody his presence in the world. But then Jesus gives some warnings. He gives two warnings. The first warning is embedded in the salt metaphor where he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I did some research, and sodium chloride, which is the technical name for salt, it's actually a very stable substance. And what this means is, Salt, you can have it in your cupboard for 20 years, and you're not going to open it and say, oh, gosh, that salt's gone bad, because salt doesn't go bad. So the question is, what's Jesus saying? Salt losing its saltiness. That's impossible. 
And there's some debate, but John, John Stott, as he often does, he shed, shed some of the most helpful light in answering this question. He says, what was then popularly called salt was in fact a white powder, perhaps from around the Dead Sea, which, while containing sodium chloride, also contained much else, since in those days there were no refineries. Of this dust, the sodium chloride was probably the most soluble component and so the most easily washed out. The residue of white powder still looked like salt and was doubtless still called salt, but it neither tasted nor acted like salt. It was just road dust. And so you'd have this clumps of white stuff, and then because of you know, maybe moisture in the air, maybe it rained, whatever, you thought it was salt, but then you'd lick it and it didn't taste like salt. You'd try to season food or preserve food or put it in a wound, and, and it wasn't doing anything. And then you'd have to throw it out where you'd throw all your garbage, which in that day was on the road. And people would trample on it. Why? Because the essence of it was gone. It was useless. It looked like it was salt, but it wasn't salt. But here's the point. Jesus is saying there is a quality about his disciples that makes them, that makes us utterly distinct from the world. And this distinctiveness is what actually makes us a blessing for the world. It's our uniqueness that makes us useful. And if we lose our distinctiveness, then we're no longer useful in God's plan of putting the world back right. And so that, that asks, you know, forces us to ask the question, what is Christian distinctiveness? What is our saltiness, if you want to put it that way? I didn't grow up in church, came to faith as a teenager, so this might just be more my story, but I think it's probably shared. I was told when I was young and in the very formative years of my faith, what made me distinctive from everyone else, like from all the non-Christians, was that I didn't party, that I didn't drink, and I didn't sleep around, you know? And I was told, like, if you do that, you're going to live such an amazing life that people are going to flock and ask you, like, your life's so different and it's so amazing. Like, you don't drink, you don't party. No one knows what you do. But you're like, <laughs> I'm drawn. Tell me about this Jesus that, that you supposedly worship. I don't, that's how it was. That never happened for me, but that's how it was kind of sold to me. And... I don't, I don't want to diminish that our integrity and our moral lives matter a lot, and Jesus is going to address that in the coming weeks, that our internal righteousness matters, especially in regards to things like alcohol or our sexuality. I do want to say that that does not make us unique or distinct. There are millions, if not billions, of people of other faiths in our world, Orthodox Jews and Muslims, to name a couple, who hold to the same kind of teaching in regards to alcohol, human sexuality, sex outside of marriage. And so thinking that that's what makes us distinct, we're missing something big. What are we missing? What is our real distinctiveness? What makes us different? And the answer is what we've already hinted at. What makes us distinct is we live in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand that the king has come and he's coming again and he's going to put the world right. 
And we recognize that that changes everything. And Jesus actually tells us how it changes everything when he gives us the Beatitudes. And Jonathan did a wonderful job walking through the Beatitudes last week, but I want to circle back to them. A lot of times as a preacher would say, I don't want to belabor this point. I want to belabor this point. I want to go back to the Beatitudes because I believe the longer I sit with them, the more I immerse myself in them, the more I'm convinced that the Beatitudes speak to the very essence of our distinctiveness. And I think for most of us, the Beatitudes are something that we learn once, maybe we overlook, we don't know what to do with, or we just push aside because we don't like them. But they're the very thing that makes us distinct. And you've got to hold them together. Imagine nine pieces of glass in a stained glass window. If you look at any one by itself, it, it might not be very coherent. You put them together, you get a vision for a kind of life because they all flow from one to the other. But this is our distinctiveness. And I want you to ask yourself as we're going through this, does this define the American church? Does this define my own life? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I liked how Jonathan said, don't, don't try to dress this up as like some, he doesn't say the super spiritual, which is how we want to read it. He says the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are people who show up in life deeply aware of their own inadequacies, their own sin, their own brokenness, and their utter need and dependence upon God. Very humble people, but not like a cool humble, like they're a humbled people. And so they see the brokenness in themselves. They're poor in spirit. And then the next one, he says, blessed are those who mourn. The poor in spirit are also the mourners. Why does Jesus say we're blessed if we're mourned? Why are we mourning? Why should we mourn? Well, we mourn because when we look at this world, we see what God sees when he looks at this world. Something that was created in beauty and goodness and filled with so much wonder and joy that's been totally and utterly corrupted by sin. And so we mourn when we see broken relationships. We mourn when we see broken societies. We mourn when we see systemic sin. We don't look at some issues of brokenness in the world and say, that's not that big of a deal because it doesn't affect me. We look at the whole and we say, this is not how it was meant to be. This is not what God desired when he created the place. And instead of checking out, numbing ourselves with alcohol, drugs, or Netflix, we actually get engaged and we mourn. In our mourning, though, because we are poor in spirit, there's a meekness that emerges. Meekness is not weakness, but it is gentleness. And I think really what Jesus is getting at here, your meekness is, I want the world to be different and I am not strong enough to make it dinner different. I'm not wise enough. I'm not powerful enough. And so that leads to the fourth beatitude. You're poor in spirit. You're mourning. I wish things were different. What happens? You start hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, we don't really know what hunger is like. I mean, we maybe don't eat for four hours and we get hangry, you know, and we get hard to be around. But if you've ever gone a long period of time without food or water, it's not a pleasant experience. It's a pretty awful experience. And Jesus said, blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for things to be put right, for themselves to be put right with God, for their souls to be put right, for their lives to be put right, and for the world to be put right. Then he says, blessed are the merciful. So we know that the world's broken. We know that we're broken. We know other people are broken. And so we're quick to show compassion to those who are hurting, to the vulnerable, and to those who've blown it. We look at people who are in need and we say, how can we help? We look at people who failed and we don't rub their noses in it. Then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. That's someone who doesn't have mixed motives. It's not sinlessness, but it's someone who says more than anything else, I want to know God. And he says, blessed, lastly, are the peacemakers. So we see the world, it's broken. We mourn it. We long for God to fix it. But we don't check out. We actually step in relationally and try to bring peace between people, between people groups that we don't stoke the fires of conflict in comment sections online. We don't seek to drive divisions among people. We seek to build peace. I think that's pretty awesome and a pretty awesome vision. Now, what would it look like for us to lose our saltiness? If that's what our saltiness is, well, we would be proud in spirit, and we would be arrogant. We would dance on the graves of people who suffer that we dislike. We would be arrogant instead of meek. We wouldn't hunger and thirst for righteousness as much as we'd hunger and thirst to be right. We wouldn't be merciful. We just want justice and vengeance, especially towards our enemies. We want mercy for ourselves, but we want to rub their noses in it. We wouldn't be peacemakers. I don't know about you, when I, when I look at the landscape of Christianity in America, I feel like this is what's happened. We've lost our saltiness. We've lost this distinctiveness. And that's why we're told that Jesus says, if that happens, you get thrown out and you get trampled on. And what he means by trampled on, I don't think he means like, I ate this salt. I'm going to stomp it into the dust. What he means by trampled on is you're thrown out and people don't even know you're there. They just walk on you. You've lost any influence and you actually just go unnoticed. The second metaphor, the second warning. So the first one, he says, don't, don't be compromised. Don't lose your distinctiveness. And the second one's really easy. He says, and don't retreat. Don't become cloistered. Don't just try to hide yourself from the world. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. I've sent you into the world. You have to go and engage. Salt is useless, even if it's a half an inch away from food. It's got a touch. And Jesus is saying, I want to send you out as a distinct people. You're going to face opposition and persecution. You're going to feel this temptation to retreat. But go anyway. And he gives us this great promise of why we should go. And this is my last point. Matthew 5:16 Jesus says let your shine let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven Jesus says if we embody 
the life he's called us to embody. Notice he doesn't say if you go and preach good sermons or you develop good evangelistic strategies. I'm not against those things. But he says, you know, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works. He says they should look at your life and your works and say, huh, the way that person lives is different than the way I live, and I wish I lived more like they live. I wonder why they live that way. And then they give glory to your Father who's in heaven. It's a wonderful vision. And the reality is that everyone here who's a Christian, you're here because that reality played out in your life with someone. You're here today because someone lived into their calling to be salt and light. Now, this has loads of implications for us. You know, one of my... I think this text, what it does is it, it enables us to reimagine what a faithful Christian presence in our culture could look like. See, the old, old vision that the church had is we're going to grab power and we're going to get married to certain politicians and political parties. And even though it's kind of a nasty arrangement at times and we don't like things about them and they don't actually like a whole lot of what we believe, we're just going to lock arms with them and, and hope for the best that we get what we want and they get what they want. It was through power. It was through coercion. It was through control. And it led to a 50-year culture war that we lost. And we lost bad. And Christians who used to hold and wield a lot of influence in society, now they're on the margins. And this has a lot of people scared and anxious. To me, I'm excited because I see tremendous opportunity and possibility in this cultural moment for us to reimagine what does it look like. And then we go to Jesus, and it wasn't about grabbing worldly power it wasn't about like influencing culture. That was a really big thing 10 years ago in the church. We're going to like get into the city centers and we're going to influence all of the most influential people in the world. And then that's going to influence their work. And that's how Christianity, like it's great on paper. It's just never how God works in the scriptures. It doesn't seem rarely how he works in the Bible. What do we see? God's always like finding the people in the absolute margins, way over here that everyone else has forgotten. He's like, hey, I want you to do this. Me? I can't do that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. People will laugh. That's the point. You know, come, get involved. It's always from the margins. It's never from the top. And if we regain that imagination, if we remember that these weren't the powerful that Jesus gave these words to, and if we remember that his promise came true through them. I was a history major in college because I'm always curious of why things, I'm a very curious person, why are things the way they are? And you can be here and you can have no interest in anything I'm saying. Here's what you need to be interested in though. Here's the question you have to ask. 2,000 years ago, something happened that changed the course of human history forever, including how we number our years. Something happened. And you can go find the non-Christian scholars, Christian scholars, whoever you want. And it happened with a bunch of nobodies from Galilee, which was a no-place town. And they had no money, no influence, no power. 
And then 300 years later, the Roman emperor is bowing down and worshiping Jesus. Something happened. How did they do it? How did the early church do it? What was their strategy? Well, in the book Ancient Faith for the Church's Future, Alan Kreider argues their strategy is not what you'd think. He writes this, the early Christians did not engage in public preaching, so this never happened. It was too dangerous. The early Christians had no missions board. They did not write treaties about evangelism. The Great Commission, so central in the missionary movement in late Christendom, was hardly mentioned by the Christians in the early centuries. He goes on and asks this question, were the worship services of the early Christians seeker-sensitive, attempting to interpret the gospel to the pagans who attended? Alas, even this does not fit our modern templates. After Nero's persecution in the mid-first century, the churches in the Roman Empire closed their worship services to visitors. <laughs> Deacons stood at the church's doors serving as bouncers. Think of Mike Burns. I think he's in the back. Just stood there checking to see that no unbaptized person, no lying informer could come into the private space, the enclosed garden of the Christian community. And so he lays out, he's like, they blew up. The church blew up. Why did it blow up? Well, it wasn't because they had lights and fog and smoke machines and power. They didn't do any of that. Why did they blow up? Because they lived radically distinctive lives. You know, it's been said in that day, that society, people were sexually promiscuous but financially stingy. And then the Christians come along and they're sexually stingy. They won't have sex with anyone unless they're married to them. But they're financially promiscuous. Like, <laughs> they're just giving money away all the time. We also know that they stepped in and met needs that no one else wanted to meet. It was common for Romans to leave unwanted babies, who were almost always female, to leave them in garbage dumps because they didn't want to raise them. And so they would leave them there to die of exposure. And it was the legacy of the Christians that they went and they rescued those baby girls and they raised them as their own, which is one of the main reasons the early church had so many more women than men. In the year 250 AD, Christians were subject to empire-wide persecution in the Roman Empire. They were arrested, imprisoned, tortured, executed. The emperor died shortly after that. But then a new threat emerged, which was the plague, probably the measles. And it just ravaged society. Killed thousands upon thousands. Anyone who could fled to the hills to get away from sick people. The Christians stayed. That's amazing. They cared for other Christians. That's amazing. You want to know what's really amazing? They cared for the people that had just been torturing them and arresting them nine months to a year earlier. It's an historical record. Is it any wonder that the Roman world kind of sat up and took notice, oh, these people really are different? I could list dozens and dozens of more examples, but it wasn't through the accrual of power or influence. It was through faithful presence of salt and light. And I wonder what it would look like for us to regain our calling as salt and light to regain our distinctiveness. And in that, to reframe for the next generation what it means to be a Christian. I know a lot of people that don't want to identify as Christians, 
because the name has just been so diluted and polluted. Anyone else know what I mean? Are you a Christian? Uh, yes. But not like those Christians. You know, we come up with new ones like, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a follower of the way, which sounds so cultish. Like we, <laughs> the word Christian's not going anywhere. It's just not going anywhere. And the way the name's redeemed is people who actually embody the ethics of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and hold to the faith of Jesus who live out the beatitude life. They claim the name of Christ. That's the way it's changed. And so I don't know what the Lord's stirring in you. I'm throwing a lot at you. I am pleading with you. Is your life distinct? Do you want to see that distinctiveness? Do we want to be that kind of people or do we still want to be lunging after power? I also want to put a plea with you. Chad mentioned we're going to be doing a ton of baptisms on Easter. We live in this weird cultural world where everyone's a Christian, but people are terrified of being baptized. And they're terrified of being baptized because everyone's a Christian. And if they get baptized, that means at one point they weren't a Christian. And it gets all twisted up in their head. And then it's like, I'm just not going to do that. Uh, someone threw water on me when I was a child. Good enough for me. We want to change that. I know there are dozens and dozens and dozens of believers in Jesus in our church who've never been baptized. And if you wait long enough, then it gets super weird, doesn't it? Like if you follow Jesus for 20 years, it's like, you know, I should probably get baptized. No, you just stay quiet about it. And then you feel guilty about this awesome gift Jesus gave that celebrates new life. And so on Easter, there is, we're calling it No Shame Easter Sunday for baptism. I don't care how long you've been following Jesus. We're not going to look at you. At least we won't say it publicly. We're trying to, no one's going to look at you and say, really, you haven't been baptized? Because we've been raised in this quasi-Christian culture where everyone was kind of had something probably that was close, close enough to a baptism at some point in their life. And so we went no shame, and we're also doing it differently. I love the way we do baptism, but I also recognize that it's very, very intimidating. And a lot of people don't want to get baptized because they're afraid they'll die standing in front of a group, having their life story read in front of 500 strangers. They're afraid they'll get into the water, and at that point, they'll have a heart attack. They won't get raised back out of the water. And so we want to remove some of those obstacles. If you want to share your story on Easter Sunday, you can share your story. If you want to share a couple of sentences about what Jesus means to you or what he's done in your life, you can share that. The only thing you have to share is a sacred confession that Jesus is Lord. And so we will have pastors after the service that would love to talk to you. We've already got, I don't know, 10, 15 people signing up right now. We would love to see that number quadruple, if not more. And so really this is all a big pitch for you to get baptized and to really live into the life that Jesus has called you to live into. We're going to move to the Lord's table, remembering that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us, remembering that what we do flows from who we are. Remember that because he gave his body as bread and his blood as wine, we can give our lives as salt and light. So if you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to take part. The way we do communion is we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it in either the wine or the juice. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave everything to save you. Let me pray.